Father, we're desperate for you to be our king. We confess, we admit that we put other things in front of you all the time. We follow earthly kings. And God, we need your help. We need your spirit to convict us, to change us, to move us, to crush the idols that we put in the number one spot in our hearts and our minds and to replace them with your son, Jesus. I pray as we start this series and even this text this morning that you would expose us to the things that we put in front of you and you would help us turn from those things back to you. May you make it true. God, give us the eyes to see it this morning, the ears to hear it, hearts to be transformed into your son. We ask that you would do it. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we are starting a new series uh, today, and it's actually going to carry us through the rest of the calendar year until we get to Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Um, so it's going to be for quite some time. Let me give you the big idea. Uh, if you weren't here and didn't hear it last week, the series is called We Want a King. And in the midst of what we're going to see in 1 Samuel 8 this morning, the people are crying that they want a king that may rule over them like all the nations. And when we reject God as king, man, it always leads to disaster. It really, really does. And this series is going to center on the rise and fall of Israel's first three kings. We're going to spend some time, five weeks, on the life of Saul. We're going to spend 11 weeks on the life of David, and then five more weeks on the life of Solomon, the first three kings of the nation of Israel. And we're exploring these themes of power and brokenness, national division, and personal failure, uh, all of which, which should be cultivating in us a heart for God. And ultimately, all these three kings uh, and, and the narrative surrounding them should lead us to a desperation to trust Jesus as our king. That's the whole point of what we're trying to do. And we just came out of the book of Colossians. If you've been with us um, for the beginning of the summer, we spent 10 weeks in the book of Colossians. And it's this letter that Paul writes to this small church community in Colossae. And he says, listen, um, you're going to get swept away from these different cultures if you're not paying attention. There are these other cultures that you're surrounded by that want you not to put Jesus as the king, not to put Jesus as supreme. And if you're not careful, you'll drift into these cultures. Don't do it. And he gives us practical ways to put Jesus first in our life. And in the midst of that four-chapter book, um, there's really a hinge that, that turns the book toward practical. What does this actually look like to put Jesus uh, supreme and king in my life? And it's in chapter 3. Let me just remind us of it because I think it ties into what we're talking about in this series. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, this is what Paul says. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. So what Paul is saying is like, listen, uh, you've made a decision for Jesus. That's what he said. If you're in Christ, you've bowed your knee to him. He's the king of your life. Everything should revolve around him. Because that is true, you have to set your mind on him. You maybe made a decision some point in your life for Jesus, and if you just wake up and you go throughout your life and you're not intentionally seeking Christ, spending time in his word, being with his people, you'll get swept up by the culture that you're around, and you will be disappointed. And so he says, seek the things of Christ and set your mind on things above, not on 
things on earth. Now, he's not trying to create this dualistic idea of all that matters is heaven and, and nothing on earth matters until we get to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying even in the midst of everything you do in your life on earth, do it with purpose. Do it with Christ in mind. Do it for a reason instead of just leaning back and letting the culture dictate what you say or what you do. And as we look at our text this morning, the main idea I think we need to take away from it, which will carry throughout the series, is this. If you follow an earthly king, you'll get earthly results. But if you follow a heavenly king, you'll get heavenly results. Now, that seems obvious to us, but most of us follow earthly kings expecting heavenly results, don't we? throughout our day and throughout our life, but we need to be reminded that if we follow those earthly kings and we'll define what those things are through the text, we're going to be disappointed. We're not going to get the results that those things promise us in life. It's only when we bow our knee to Jesus that we will get those types of results as we follow a heavenly king. So we need to set up the book because if you've noticed, we're jumping into chapter 8. There's been seven chapters before this. And so anytime you read the Bible uh, in your own time or collectively, we need to understand the context of the story we're in to make sense of what the story is trying to tell us. And so we're going to watch a Bible Project video, just four minutes of it, leading up to chapter 8. I would encourage you, if you're not familiar uh, with this group, they're fantastic. They do a ton, a ton of good work with helping us understand what the Bible means in its context. And so uh, we're going to watch this. I want you to pay attention really to the prayer of Hannah, which comes in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, because there's some major themes that are going to carry us through the rest of the book. So watch this four-minute intro. Pay attention because it's really going to help frame the rest of our time together. Go ahead and watch this. The books of First and Second Samuel. They're two separate books in our modern Bibles, but that division is due simply to scroll length. It was originally written as one coherent story. We're just going to cover the book of First Samuel in this video. So after Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt, they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai and eventually came into the Promised Land. And there, Israel was supposed to be faithful to God and obey the covenant commands. Before the book of Samuel, judges showed how Israel failed at that task big time. It was a period of moral chaos, and it showed Israel's need for wise, faithful leaders. The book of Samuel provides an answer to that need. The book of Samuel's story focuses on three main characters. The prophet Samuel, where the book gets its name, and then King Saul, and after that, King David. And all three of them transitioned Israel from a group of tribes ruled by judges into a unified kingdom ruled by King David in Jerusalem. And the book of Samuel has a fascinating design that weaves the story of these three characters together in four main parts. Samuel, he's the key leader and prophet in the first section of the book, but then he also plays a key role in the next section, which is Saul's story, and it's told in two movements, Saul's rise to power and then his failures, and the second part is about his downfall and his tragic death. And then the drama of Saul's demise is matched by David's exciting rise to power, and then David's story is told in two movements. First, he rides the wave of his success, followed by his own tragic failure and the slow self-destruction of his family and then his kingdom. The book concludes with an epilogue that reflects back over the whole story. So let's dive in and see how this all unfolds. Part one picks up from the chaos of the book of Judges, and we're introduced to a touching story about a woman named Hannah. 
And she's grieved because she has never been able to have children. And by God's grace, she finally has a son named Samuel. And in joy, she sings this amazing poem in chapter 2. And the poem is all about how God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, about how despite tragedies and human evil, God is working out his purposes in history. And also it's about how God will one day raise up an anointed king for his people. Now, Hannah's poem has been placed here at the beginning of the book to introduce these key themes that we're going to see throughout the whole story, like the next one. Samuel grows up and becomes a great prophet and leader for the people of Israel, at the same time that the Philistines rise to power as Israel's arch nemesis. And in this crucial battle, the Israelites get arrogant, and instead of praying and asking God for help, they trot out the Ark of the Covenant as this kind of magic trophy that will automatically grant them victory in battle. And so because of their arrogant presumption, God allows Israel to lose the battle and the Ark is stolen. So the Philistines, they take the ark and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And then the god of Israel defeats the Philistines and the god Dagon without an army by sending plagues on the people. And then the Philistines don't want the ark anymore, obviously, and they send it back to Israel. And the point of this little story seems to be this. God is not Israel's trophy. And he opposes pride among the Philistines, but also among his own people. And so Israel needs to remain humble and obedient if they want to experience God's covenant blessing, which opens up into the next large section. The Israelites come to Samuel and they say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations have. Go find one for us. And so Samuel, he's kind of ticked off and he goes to consult with God. And God says, yes, their motives are all wrong, but if a king is what they want, give them one. Okay, that gives us a quick update on where we are in the book. Hopefully you were listening to that. So if you have a Bible and it's already open, open it to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to be walking through chunks of this. And it's helpful to know as we continue in this for the next several months, um, what we're looking at is a historical narrative in our Bible. We just came out of a letter directly to the church in Colossians. And the biblical historical narratives indicate indirectly or subtle truths explained more directly elsewhere in scripture. So we just came out of Colossians where Paul is saying, listen, you want to walk with Jesus, this is what you do. As we look at this narrative, it's not going to do that as much. Sometimes the Bible is showing you just based on the story, and sometimes it's telling you directly. Most of what we're going to see in this narrative is showing us. So our work in the midst of the next several months is to understand what's happening culturally because a lot of us miss it because we're not familiar with what's going on in the context. So our job is to go, okay, what's actually happened in the culture and how does that even show us how we're called to live? Now, sometimes it will tell us, even in the text this morning, there'll be some indicators of the motives of God's people that kind of tell us what's happening for us to be aware of. So just keep that in mind. The most helpful thing you can do if you're in this community consistently is read the stories before showing up on Sunday, right? Because we're looking at all of chapter 8 today. Next week, we'll look at chapters 9 and 10, then the next week, 11. So the more you can get familiar with the language and the stories in the midst of your week, the more helpful it will be walking in on a Sunday to understand them because we're not going to be able to go every single verse that way. We're going to kind of look in big chunks. Does that make sense? Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're starting in verse 4. Let's read it again. It says this. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, 
You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Just a pause real quick. Uh, the, the verses, a couple right before this, if you look up in your Bible, it says that Samuel uh, uh, gives judgment or gives judges to his two sons and they are crooked. Verse 2 says they go after their own gain. Verse 3 says they took bribes and they perverted justice. So the nation of Israel is under bad leadership at this point. That's what they're calling to Samuel's attention. The second part of verse 4 says, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel what they said. Give us a king to judge. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say for you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So again, here's the problem. God's people, the nation of Israel, they don't want to follow him anymore as their king. They want their own king. Why do they want to follow earthly kings? Why do we want to follow earthly kings? We see it in the text in verse 4, and really verse 5, and later in verse 20 kind of exposes their motives, is they don't like their circumstances. Have you ever been under bad leadership before? <laughs> maybe in your family, maybe in your work maybe somewhere, and you're going, this is not okay. I don't like the way I'm being treated. This is unfair, and this is not right. This is where the nation of Israel starts, rightly so, going to Samuel and saying, this is not okay what your sons are doing. The way your sons are leading is not right. But instead of trusting the Lord in the midst of their circumstances, they want to jump that trust, and they want to say, we're going to figure it out. You need to give us a king. They look to the right and to the left, they look next door at their neighbors and they go, oh, the Philistines, like this is working out for them. I see what their king is doing and he's getting results. Like we should have a king like that. And then they look over here to the Canaanites and they go, oh, I see what their king is doing. Their king takes action. He does something. Our king, God, Yahweh, it just seems to be sitting back in the midst of what's going on in our direct circumstances. So they're frustrated at their circumstances. They start looking to the left or the right, comparing the people around them, and then they're also impatient. Verse 5 says, now appoint to us a king. The problem with Israel's demand is not the fact that they want a king, but that they want a king now. They're tired of waiting. They've been too patient, too long. They're looking to the right and to the left. They're seeing other kings doing things, getting action done, and they're going, okay, we've had enough of this, God. Like, we want a king like all the other nations, and we want it right now. Do you ever have an issue with that in your relationship with God? Do you ever have an issue when you look to your right or to your left, and you see the circumstances of people that aren't following God, maybe it's in your career, and they're doing things that are unethical, but they seem to be rising to the top. And you're like, God, what is the deal here? Or maybe you're single, and you're looking to the right and you're looking to the left and you've uh, been a bridesmaid like 50 times this year or groomsmen a hundred times this year and you're going, God, I don't understand what's going on. I know their character. How are they getting married and not me? 
Do you ever look to the left and to the right and you start playing the comparison game and you start thinking about your relationship with God and you go, God, where are you? You seem to be silent. And then you start getting impatient. And then you start going, okay, God, if you're really who you are, you need to show up right now. And instead of waiting for God to provide for you and be your protection, which is the problem here, and we see it in chapter 7, we're not covering it, but God provides and he protects for his people in unbelievable ways. And they don't want to remember that. They want something right now. Do you ever get impatient with God's timing? I'm like, is this thing real? Like, are you listening at all, God? Because I'm looking to my right and I'm looking to my left and things are happening for these people, but they don't seem to be happening for me. And then you get impatient and you start trying to control. This is what God's people are doing in this passage. They want a king and they want a king right now. The idea of being impatient is something for all of us in the midst of, uh, think about the culture that the, uh, God's people are coming out of. Again, uh, Egypt was a high, high productivity culture. You needed to do it, you needed to do it. The first time Pharaoh has a problem with what Moses says is when he says, you're gonna take the people away from what? Their work. Do we live in a high productivity culture where everything needs to happen right now? I ordered something today and I'm frustrated it's not coming tomorrow on Amazon because it's a holiday. Because I'm used to getting it right now and we carry that over into our relationship with God and God does not operate at that speed. He doesn't because he knows what's going on with our hearts. Waiting for the best God has to offer is always better than settling for what's right now. And that's hard for us to understand. That's hard for us to hear, but it's true. To be patient enough to wait for what God wants to provide instead of grabbing for control and doing it yourself. That's what's happening with God's people. And the way we follow kind of these everyday earthly kings that kind of seep into our lives are anything we give our allegiance to, anything uh, we uh, give our time, energy, and effort to more than God starts to slip its way into our heart as our king, right? And these are usually good things. It could be a career. It could be a family. It could be marriage. It could be money, status, comfort, experience. When you start to give all your energy and all your time and all your effort into those things, they might be an idol and Jesus might not be at the top of your heart. And you can slip into this mentality that God's people are slipping into here. So what do we do? What, what, what does the text do as Samuel goes to God in prayer, which is great. He doesn't turn around and tell his sons about it. It sounds like he goes directly to the father with this problem that he is feeling. And this is what God tells him. He says, hey, you, you need to be the only one that warns them. Give them a king. That's what they're asking for. But you need to warn them. Let's pick up the story in verse 10. What are the results of following these earthly kings that the people are wanting? Verse 10 says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking them for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways the king who will reign over you. Now, I want you to take note. If you, if you write in your Bible, underline the word take as we go through this, because this is something that's happening repetitive in the story on purpose. It says, He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run 
before his chariots, and he will appoint himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and he will, uh, and to some, to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Verse 13, and he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and oil or olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your grain uh, from, uh, from your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and donkeys to put him to work. And he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So God tells Samuel to give this warning, this strong warning. Listen, you're saying you want a king for these reasons. Let me help you understand. If you bow your knee to this earthly king, this will be the result. Be warned. This is, do you really want this? Do you really want to follow a king that these will be the results? What are the results of following this king? A couple things for us to take note of, to be warned of. We already mentioned it, but they will take and take and take and take. And when we start to follow earthly kings, whether it's directly or indirectly, they start to take and take and take and take. They cannot give us what they promise us. Idols never fail to fail, it's been said. Right? And so they'll take and take and take, ultimately leaving you what? Enslaved. You're going to be slaves again is what he's saying to God's people. You're going to be enslaved to the thing you are worshiping that cannot give you the results you are after if you follow earthly kings. Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary, which is massively helpful, says of this section, this warning of Scripture, he says, it is the most important piece in the Old Testament on the abuse of public power. And that's true. When you follow someone and you give them the power a king has in this time, like all the other nations, there will be an abuse of power. And you will be under that abuse. Do you want that is what Samuel is telling to the people. Not only will they be enslaved, another result of following an earthly king is they will lose their identity. They will lose their identity as God's people. The request for a king, an earthly king, like all the other nations, is not a rejection of logic. It's a rejection of identity. Who they are as God's people, that he is meant to be their king, no one else. And they're unraveling their identity as God's called people because they're settling for an earthly king. They've been constituted as God's people, established at the covenant at Mount Sinai, informed by the Torah instructions, and led and protected by divinely ordained religious judges. And now their very identity is in doubt because they want something else. They've grown weary of being unique, and they're seeking conformity and security. It's really what they're after and asking for an earthly king. But as this passage makes clear, they're grasping for something they fail to understand, and they'll lose the very thing they hope to find in following an earthly king instead of a heavenly king. 
What's another example? They'll be enslaved if they follow an earthly king. Uh, They'll lose their identity as God's people if they follow an earthly king. And then those things are scary, but verse 18 might be the scariest part of the text in the warning. Look back at your Bible. What does it say in verse 18? It says, and on that day you will cry out because of your king who you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's scarier than all the other things. That you finally realize what you've done and who you've bowed your knee to, and you cry out to God, and in that day, he doesn't answer you. Now, I love the text says, in that day, because God is gracious, and he eventually answers his people, and he loves his people, and he comes after his people. But he's trying to say, listen, You've made your bed. You need to lie in it for a minute to help understand what's going on in the depths of your hearts. And verse 18 actually ties of chapter 8, ties back to chapter 7 in a way where it's contrasting the two. And I know we haven't gone through 7, but in uh, chapter 7, verse 9, Samuel cries out to Yahweh and he answers. And we see how this cry and answer is a central construct for the practice of Israel's faith, of trusting God, right? We saw it in Exodus chapter 2. They're enslaved. And what does it say at the end of chapter 2? They're crying out to God. And God hears their cry, and he responds to them in action. He saves them from a culture of slavery. So the text is using very intentional language here. The earthly king that they're after substitutes human power for the availability of God's power. That's what they're doing. I want an earthly king, human power, and you're substituting for the divine power. I like how Walter Brueggemann says it again in his commentary. He says this, how remarkable that Yahweh, that's the name of God in the Old Testament, that Yahweh concedes everything, doesn't resist, he doesn't argue, he doesn't rage, he doesn't retaliate. There is for Yahweh, as for Samuel, a wistfulness and deep sadness. Something precious is being forfeited in Israel, and Israel seems to not even notice. It makes me curious. What are the ways that we've forfeited God, and we don't even notice? He's saying, you want that? You keep begging for that? You keep asking for that? Go ahead and take it. And it's God's way of his passive judgment to say, okay, you keep asking for that. I'm going to give it to you so that you can see it will not fulfill you. And you'll eventually come back to me. We need to be aware of that. That's scary news. If we follow these earthly kings, we'll get earthly results. But if we follow a heavenly king, we'll get heavenly results. So how do God's people respond to this warning that Samuel gives to them? Listen, you don't want to realize that that king you're going to follow, the earthly king, he's going to take and take and take, and you're going to be enslaved again back where you were in Egypt, number one. Number two, you're going to lose your identity as God's people. And number three, you're going to cry out to God when you're at the bottom. He's not going to answer you in that day. That's the warning. How do they respond? Verse 19 says this, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them 
in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man to his city. So Samuel gives this warning of God, don't, don't do it, don't do it. Don't follow those earthly kings. You shouldn't want that. It's not going to be good for you. And the people said, ah, I don't want to hear it. Give us a king. But in this text, it gives us one more motivator of why they want a king. Look back at your Bibles at the end of verse 20. What does it say? They want a king to go out before us and fight our battles. The people want kings that will fight their battles the world's way, not God's way. In the 1987 film, The Untouchables, it's about an FBI mission to take down the most notorious mobster in all of Chicago, Al Capone. If you've seen this movie, you've got Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, who's this kind of by-the-book uh, detective. He wants to do things the right way. He doesn't want to cut any corners. He has high ethics. And then he encounters, as he's trying to catch Capone, he's kind of getting made fun of. And then he finally runs into this character named Jim Malone who's played by Sean Connery, and he's kind of a beat cop. He's grown up in Chicago. He knows the ways of Chicago. And in one of the most telling lines of the whole movie, this is what Malone, Sean Connery's character, tells Elliot Ness. He said, you want to get Capone? They pull a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of ours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And here's what his character is saying. He's saying, listen, if you actually want to get this done, you have to play by their rules. You have to play by the Chicago way. You work harder, you do it better, and you get it done. They pull a knife, you pull a gun. And some of us have let that mentality seep into our Christianity, like God's people have here. They're going like, we don't want God's protection. We don't want him to fight our battles the way he used to. We want a, a king to fight the battles the way the world does, the Chicago way. I love in Exodus chapter 14, if you're familiar with the narrative, this is uh, as God's people have been rescued from slavery out of Egypt and they finally are able to leave. God sends sovereignly these plagues to release his people because they've been crying out in slavery and finally they're released. So Moses is leading them all out to the wilderness, eventually to the promised land. And as they leave, they get trapped in the Red Sea. Let's pick up in Exodus 14, you can see it on the screens or turn there in your Bible, starting in verse 5, about how God fights for his people and how the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, fights for his. It says, when the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had a chariot made ready and took his army with him. This is the Chicago way. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. We're going to bring everybody after these people. Verse 8, but the Lord hardened his heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were mar marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea at Pi, uh, Hi, uh, Hi something. <laughs> I wrote these down so I could understand how to pronounce them, and I just didn't do it. Um, and they're opposite of that other city there, Bel Zaphon. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. 
And there were Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it, were there no other graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And I get it in 1 Samuel 8. I, I get why the people are crying out for a king. Because the army is bearing down on them, just like Exodus 14. They're going, what's going on? I'm looking to my left and to my right, and it doesn't make any sense. God, you better show up right now. We're going to die here. And some of you feel like you're dying because of your circumstances. And that's a validated feeling. But what are you going to do? Are you going to grab hold for control, which all of us have a tendency to do, or are you going to let Yahweh fight the battle the way he does? And you're just going to be still. And that's a scary place to be. It's scary to be still and stand still when all this stuff is swarming around you. Do you trust God in the moment to be your protector, to be your provider? Because that's what it means following a heavenly king. Or are you following the earthly king and just going, no, 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 no I need to grab control. I need to grab control of the circumstance and I need to grab control of this moment. Man, and what this text in Exodus 14 and really what's happening in 1 Samuel 8 is, is doing is it's reflecting a failure for God's people to trust his power to save them. They're impatient. And they don't want to trust him. God has rescued his people from Israel, like we see in the story in Exodus 14. In a remarkable way, he does it again in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. He rescues them. He gives them peace, but it's not enough for the people. They don't trust God. They want a king they can see. They want to live by sight. They want an earthly king that they can see instead of a heavenly king that they can't see. Because living by faith it's just too hard. It's just too difficult. And it's interesting because what God does in his sovereignty and his love for his people is way down the story, he actually sends a king that can see. He sends a king in the flesh that's born in the manger. And he says, okay, let me show you. Let me show you a king that will undo all the wrong that you've been seeing that will heal people. And will take care of the lame and heal the sick and do unbelievable things in your sight. And what do God's people do with that king? We just came out of the Gospel of John a couple of months back. We saw as Jesus is stepping to his trial towards his death. What do God's people say in John chapter 19, verse 5, as they ask about this king, Jesus, in front of them. And they say, we have no king but Caesar, an earthly king. And they end up killing the king that's right in front of them. And this is all of us. This is all of our stories. 
And it's here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Do you know that you have a king and he'll fight for you? Do you believe that this morning? You have a king that will fight for you. And all you have to do is be still. Will you let him fight for you? Will you be still in that moment instead of grabbing control and doing this and doing that, even though you feel like, ah, I'm up against it and I'm drowning here, will you let him fight for you? You follow a king that fought for you by sending his son to be murdered so that you could have freedom. You can settle for this earthly king, but if you follow this earthly king, you're going to get earthly results, and you're going to be empty at the end of the day, whether you're a Christian or not. But if you follow a heavenly king, the one that actually fights for you, you will have heavenly results. You'll have security in the midst of your circumstances, feeling totally insecure. You will have unconditional love in a world that has ties to its love, but God loves you unconditionally and cares for you. You'll have grace in the midst of your mistakes in a world that says you can't make any mistakes. When you follow a heavenly king, those are the heavenly results that come with it. But if you follow an earthly king and we get tricked into doing it all the time, we'll have earthly results. We want a king. It's what the people cry. It ought to be the cry of our hearts as well, but not the way God's people were crying in chapter eight, asking for an earthly king but crying out to the true King Jesus to reign and rule over our lives. That's our heart's desire with this series, that we would cry that we want a king and Jesus being the only king, that we would learn what that looks like in our life played out day to day, moment by moment. We need to reset who the actual king of our lives is. That's why we come to the table every single week we come to this table to remember who our real king is, to get a reset on our hearts, to ask the spirit to reset our hearts and our minds, to crush our idols that have somehow slipped into the number one place in our hearts and put Jesus back on the throne where he rightly belongs. That's why we do what we do on Sundays, to be reminded of that because you're gonna leave these doors and everybody else is gonna tell you to follow another king. That's not Jesus. Don't slip into that problem of chasing after earthly kings. Let's chase after a heavenly king. If you follow an earthly king, you're gonna get earthly results. If you follow a heavenly king, you'll get heavenly results. What type of king are you following this morning? And as I wanna close, as we're about to move, I wanna read and recite a portion of a sermon. There is a pastor in Detroit, Michigan in the 70s. And in 1976, he stepped onto the pulpit on a Sunday morning. His name is S.M. Lockridge, and he laid out a sermon called, That's My King. And I want to read a portion of it. And as I finish, we'll begin to move in our response to who our king really is this morning. Listen to what he says in his sermon. He says, the Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of ages, and he's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory, and he's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. 
No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled and he's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick and he cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble and he blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway to peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness, and he's the gateway of glory. I wonder if you know him. His life is matchless. His goodness, limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteousness. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him out of your heart. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees, they couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod tried to kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. This is the king we worship. You can follow earthly kings all you want, and you will get earthly results, but if you follow this king, Jesus, the only true king, you will get the results that he gives us. Let's be people that follow Jesus as our king. As we respond this morning, let us have hearts that turn back to him, putting him back on the throne where he belongs.